Hello and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Inequality Group at Mellemfoldet Samvirke Aarhus. My name is Chris. I am currently an intern with MS. With me today is Pelle Draustel, an author and politician from the Red Green Alliance in Denmark. And full disclosure, Pelle and I has known each other for a while. And we invited Mr. Pelle Draustel to give a speak about his new book, Nordisk Socialisme, or Nordic Socialism in English. And it's a book in which he lays out his views on how to further democratic control and civil ownership of the greater Danish and Nordic economy. So let's jump straight in. Okay. What inspired you to write the book? Well, I've been thinking about the ideas of, of the, this book for, for many years. I think uh, what I kind of wanted was to restart a debate uh, about democratic socialism and about the democratization of of the economy, uh, not just as an utopian vision of a kind of future societies, but also on a more practical level, discussing what kind of institutional, legal, political frameworks we can use to create or take the first steps in, in the direction of a more socialist uh, economy. Because I think if we, if we are really as kind of serious about a post-capitalist society. Uh, I think it's very important, especially in these times, that the left moves beyond kind of slogans <laughs> and um, and try to formulate more practical answers also to, to some of the hard questions. For example, if we don't want a capitalist class to own the <laughs> means of production, who should own them and how should they own them? How should they be governed or stewarded um, and also of course a question of how to distribute and allocate resources uh, the old discussion about market economy versus a, a planned economy and so on so that's the main idea I think um, in some ways my generation I was born in yeah I, I, I began to be politically active around 89 you know <laughs> when the so-called socialist countries collapsed and the left have been very on the defensive for, for in almost my entire activist life. But in the last 10 years, just after the financial crisis and uh, with this new movement, starting with yeah, Occupy Wall Street, the occupation of the squares in Southern Europe, uh, Syriza, Podemos, Corbyn, Sanders, it's like the idea that socialist policies could Uh, rise to, to power is kind of not so distant anymore and in some way that forces us to in my view be more concrete uh, be more exact on what uh, socialism means in order to convince people that actually it's possible to move beyond capitalism so uh, in some ways the book I have tried to pose all the hard questions <laughs> to myself um, and to give what I hope people see as genuine answers um, in order to make yeah, socialism a more viable or yeah, attractive uh, alternative. So, yeah, you could say in a way it was also to clarify my own thoughts, uh, because, you know, if socialism only is some kind of distant dream or distant uh, yeah, pie-in-the-sky utopia, it's easy. But when you go to the more 
hard questions of how to to organize this kind of uh, yeah, economic non-exploitative activities and how to distribute goods and services and so on. It's become a little bit more complicated. And I think if we mean it seriously, and I do mean it seriously, I think we we have to to deliver uh, deliver answers. And my book is just a small contribution to to that. Yeah. Just a small contribution. Like, it's it's a pretty long book. Uh, <laughs> I read it yesterday. Maybe we should get more into it, because you have written up 10 things to act upon to further Nordic socialism. Yeah, that's the very end of the book. <laughs> that's in the very end of the book. So the the 10 uh, things he he, uh, he wrote, I will read up in, in Danish. Expandere den demokratiske sektor, en moderne fondssocialisme. Tilbage til fællesskabet, et nyt demokratisk offentligt ejerskab. Et demokratisk tokammersystem i store selskaber. Demokratisering af finanssektor og investeringer. Jord og boliger som brugsværdi, ikke markedsværdi. Datasocialisme. En fællesgørelse af offentlige goder. Demokratisk donutplanlægning. Og sidst fuld beskæftigelse og offentlig jobgaranti. From your analysis, mm. which can you mention like the three most important actionable? Yeah, well... All the reforms basically is about making two things happen. One is to, in lots of different ways, to distribute and to democratize ownership in the economy to our land, to companies, uh, to different assets and uh, infrastructure, data, intellectual property, all this kind of assets who are key in distributing wealth but also distributing power in our uh, in our economy and society so i try to come up with ideas of how to to organize ownership in a democratic way so that's one of the uh, the, the one of two main uh, tasks of 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 my reform proposal the other one is you could call it to replace uh, market power uh, with democratic decision making and and stewardship So if I I could mention some very important issues in in the two of these uh, areas I think speaking of democratic ownership I think we really need to make it a lot more easy to make the state institutions in some way support and lay the ground for much more democratic uh, Uh, ownership based on our uh, experiences not least in the in the Nordic countries of uh, different kind of cooperative ownership uh, it could be for example giving uh, workers right to buy uh, when the company they work in shifts uh, us uh, getting sold to a wealth fund or to some kind of asset manager that they should be able to make a bid and uh, that uh, that financial support and also support in how to run a, a a corporation or a company but if you want me to mention just one i think the ownership of the financial sector uh, is of course very important because not least because we are yeah in the middle of uh, yeah, the biggest crisis maybe for humanity ever the the sustainability crisis you could call it climate and biodiversity crisis so The problem is that in order to avoid the catastrophe, we need to make giant redirection of investment in our society, in our economy. But the problem is that the decisions about investments 
the most of the decisions are not taken uh, in democratic uh, forums. They're taken by oligarchs, uh, people in banks or in asset managers that do not have any kind of democratic mandate. So one important step should be to form a broad network of public banking uh, and public investment banking in order to make it possible for the democracy to take this kind of crucial decisions about uh, about the direction of the investment in the in the economy um, to change the patterns of of investment away from fossil industries and technologies and and, uh, and in the direction of all these kind of technologies that we need. So, on the other level about reducing market power, there's kind of two ways to do it. One is uh, what you could call decommodification. It's a hard, <laughs> complicated word, but explaining something very simple, that you you convert services that was commodities and convert them to social rights. So, for example, in Denmark and the Uh, decades after the uh, Second World War, uh, we changed a lot of commodities into social rights, for example, elder care, health care, education, that, you know, people were, before they were dependent on their, what do you call it, Köpekraft, in order to uh, access this kind of services. But it, in a way, you could say we took this quite great parts out of the market economy and changed them into social social rights. And so that's one way. And you could imagine we could take further step, for example, just a proposal could be dental care that in Denmark are, you know, for some strange reason outside the, the social rights of in our health system. Uh, you could talk about uh, access to internet, uh, Wi-Fi, maybe even housing. So that's one way of pushing a little bit the market more to the to the margins in our lives so we can access the most important part of, 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 of our needs without uh, being dependent on, on our purchasing power. That's one way. In my book, I do not propose a kind of centralized plant economy. I think that the experiences from the Soviet Union and other of the so-called socialist regimes, and that's a mild way of formulating it, very repressive and non-democratic societies. If we look more isolated at, at the economic models, the plant economy actually functioned quite well when the economies were, were simple, when they were producing tanks and electrification of the country. But in the 60s and the 70s, they were richer, and more of the production was you know, consumer products because the, the purchasing power of, of the people were elevated, then the economy became more and more complicated and more and more complex. And of course, also with this kind of knowledge economy where the innovation and, and the knowledge in the products have played a more important uh, role, it didn't function very well uh, anymore. So I kind of reject the idea of a centralized plant economy. But what I do uh, propose is that we should look at the discussion of market economy and plant economy in a new way. And instead of looking at it as a, a binary, that you have to choose between a market economy or a plant economy, 
uh, we should look uh, upon it as a, a continuum. I don't know if you can say that in English, kind of a spectrum, um, because that's a reality. If you look at real economies, uh, none of them uh, at the very extremes. Uh, the, there have never existed a, a, a total market economy, and actually uh, a total planned economy have never existed either. So all economies are kind of placed inside this spectrum. So what I propose in my book is that we should take some great steps in the direction of more democratic planning, but without going to the extremes of the idea of you know a centralized planning body. But I, I really think that in order to avoid the climate catastrophe, we have to do more democratic planning. The idea of just pricing, uh, you know, the, the neoclassical idea of trying to put a price tag on CO2, which, uh, what you call it, on carbon, and, and then the market kind of will, will fix it because we, we kind of, uh, as the economist would say, internalize ex externalities. Uh, but I don't think that will be functioning. Uh, I, I'm 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 very supportive of a carbon tax, but the idea that the market can can solve this alone is just naive. We have waited for for that in in 30 years, and yeah. So I think uh, we need a much more planning. For example, uh, all scarce resources we shouldn't use them for stuff that we don't need, if they are needed for stuff that we really need. And uh, in order to achieve that, we need more more planning. So in my book, I propose a, a, a thing I call donut <laughs> planning, uh, inspired, of course, by Kate Raworth and uh, her ideas about the donut economy, which is an economy that kind of exists and runs or lives inside uh, certain boundaries. Uh, and I think the idea of a planned economy that which aim is to make the economy run inside these boundaries is a quite a good way of thinking democratic planning in a, in, a, in a new way that is not this kind of centralized, bureaucratized um, planning that we, we knew from the Eastern European countries. So uh, it was not two or three simple steps, but more uh, the direction that I want to go. And and maybe we should talk a little bit about the theoretic, theoretical foundation for these ideas, because maybe f at least for some left-wingers, the idea of making an economy or a society more socialist and less capitalist is kind of maybe th provoking, or, or at least not the way we used to think about uh, modes of production, because what we have taken from Marxism, and it's not quite true to, to what Marx really said or wrote, uh, we have this idea of, yeah, that capitalism is kind of a totality. So we live inside a capitalist society, a capitalist economy and a capitalist market. And socialism is something that will arrive after we have a kind of ended capitalism. But what I propose in, in the book, uh, and that's a really central, yeah, theoretical uh, starting point is that uh, in some way, as I said with the market economy and plant economy, that it's not a binary system that uh, in, in the reality all countries, all economies are kind of mixed. So you have not just one mode of production, of course one mode of produ production will be dominant, but you have also other modes of production. I was actually inspired to this idea from an article I read maybe 25 years ago by two 
American feminists and Marxists. Uh, they wrote under the pseudonym Gibson Graham. One of them unfortunately died since, but they kind of challenged the, the idea of capitalism as a totality and uh, tried to put attention to all the economic activities that happens uh, outside capitalism. Uh, of course, in the family, <laughs> they were feminists, but also in co-ops, in family-driven companies, in the public sector, all places where goods and services are created, uh, economic activities are taking place, but that are not exploitative and not extractive and are typically also democratically governed. Another scholar, Eric Olin Wright, also unfortunately died one year ago, yeah, he carried this idea through in his uh, writing, in his latest book, it's called uh, How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century. And it's the same idea of leaving this idea of this binary uh, and uh, accepting that Eric Olin Wright uses a um, a picture kind of, a, uh, maybe it's not the best, but a biosphere where, uh, where you know, certain new spe species enters and maybe they're just kept in the margins, but maybe in some they will expand themselves and eventually take over. So that's uh, his idea of how to change an economic system. And that's more or less the same ideas that I have presented in, in my book. And I think this kind of... Um, way of understa uh, understanding an economy is especially relevant to the Nordic countries because, as I maybe explained a little bit also before, big parts of our, our economies are, it's, it's very difficult to just label them capitalist. Our public sector, for example, uh, it's about every three in the working force that works in the public sector. And, you know, uh, there are not any capital owners, uh, The goods are not traded on a market. Um, it's not oligarchic. It's a democratic system that governs in some way. Of course, there's a lot of lots of problems and lack of influence from workers and and the citizens. But but still, it's very different from a capitalist corporation. That is, you kind oligarchic. That we have no democratic influence. And and it's not just in the public sector. It's also in in our long tradition for co-op ownership uh, that uh, evolved in 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 Denmark and the Nordic countries from yeah from late 19th century. Grocery stores, yeah. the farmers' movement that made their own di dairy pr production, and uh, um, our housing sector, where yeah one of every five units today is owned by a cooperative what we call almene boligforening that is a direct ownership by the by the tenants uh, but collective ownership not uh, individual ownership so in that way this idea of of trying to acknowledge uh, that there exists something outside capitalism uh, not independent from capitalism but outside capitalism that that is something different and that this uh, something different is maybe could be a starting point for the changes that we want to make Yeah, I, I actually wanted to expand on that with with uh, cooperative ownership or democratic ownership because that is a thing we've excelled at here in the Nordics. Sadly, a lot of collectives have have passed on the last 50 years, but especially the farmers' movement and and the farmers' uh, cooperative have have proven to be really resilient. But also, they've turned kind of exploitative. Ala is not necessarily uh, climate conscious. The big 
animal production cooperatives aren't necessarily good for the environment, good for the animals. How do we make sure in this like transitional economy, mm. how do we make sure that the cooperatives don't start acting mm. as in as is yeah. as if they're in like a yeah, a of course. Economy. This is a very important question and very important point. And you know that have been the discussion on the left for more than 100 years. Uh, the the German socialist or Pol Polish uh, socialist uh, Rosa Luxemburg was very critical towards the idea of using cooperatives as a way to to create socialism because she said that the workers will just become their their own slave. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, <laughs> slave driver. Yeah. Um, so. There are several um, answers to this question. First and foremost, of course, democratic ownership is not a guarantee of good decisions. People can make bad decisions, like in a political democracy, but it is a potential for making good decisions. And um, a lot of research has been done during the last decade showing that cooperatives and worker-owned cooperatives are quite resilient and, and do well uh, also in a capitalist environment without lowering salaries or doing other kind of exploitative uh, maneuvers. But I think the most important answer to this and why, for example, ALA or, or other farmers' cooperatives are, because I totally agree, they can't be an ar argument for that, you know, that democratic ownership leads to responsible uh, decision-making because, as you know, yeah, they have a big responsibility for our deteriorating water quality, uh, for our oxygen um, <laughs> in, in, our, um, in our seas, uh, etc. And you could ask, why would a farmer pollute yeah, where his kids go to swim, for example? Uh, I think it's not kind of this, they find it a very good idea that when the kids go to swim, uh, that you know the fishes are laying with the bottom up. So, of course, we have to ask ourselves, why do they act in this way? It's kind of counter-intuitive. In, in and, and that brings us to the other point of my book, the issue about the, the capital accumulation or the market economy, because the reason for this is that uh, the Danish farming industry have been under a tremendous uh, competitive pressure, and in order to survive in a global market economy, they have just, you know, make these structural changes and uh, this very, very exploitative uh, way of doing uh, farming. And um, of course, you could discuss if it was just a bad strategy, if they could have done otherwise, but they have done it this way. And therefore, I think it's very important to say that even if we all major parts of the economy were converted into democratic ownership or co-ops, uh, we wouldn't get rid of the problem of the negative uh, consequences of market economy because if, if they have this really hard competition, they externalize. It's, it's, a, it's a logic consequence of this way of organizing the allocation of goods and services. There are also other negative consequences like business cycle that you have a recurrent crisis where a lot of uh, unemployment was really really crazy part of capitalist economy or market economy that you have people who could produce goods and services uh, that are just kept home just because it's not profitable or because there aren't any private capitalists who want to, to employ them. So there's a lot of negative consequences. So 
for me, it's very important to to say that the democratization, of course, is, is key to creating a socialist economy because some say, no, but it's not uh, socialism uh, just to d- democratize. It's still capitalism. Then I ask, okay, but then it's capitalism without capitalists. It's kind of um, a little bit uh, crazy capitalism. But but I agree that in order to achieve our goals, we, we should discuss not only uh, ownership, but also the distributional system of the market economy and the plant economy. So in order to avoid the ALA experience, you could say. Yeah. Um, a point you don't expand that much on in your book are big trade agreements or the mm. EU. Uh, because right now you're talking about external pressures. Mm. How can we in the Nordic mitigate those pressures mm. coming from outside? Yeah. Because that's, I think, the biggest vehicle for like the exploitation of our environment, mm. lowering workers' pays. Do you yeah. have like any idea on how to fix the EU and world market economy? <laughs> uh, I, as you said, it's not a, a discussion I expand in the book, and I'm very, uh, you know, I, I declare that in the in the start of the book that it's kind of, of course, I, I try to describe how we could develop our own economy uh, in a democratic way. And of course, that is an abstraction uh, because at least the most radical proposal that, that I make for taking over big companies by by the workers uh, that would uh, of course uh, in a global economy uh, if we were the only country who did that lead to capital flight uh, all the companies would just move on uh, so some of the more um, radical proposals uh, would only be possible if it was something that happened in several countries and maybe in bigger countries uh, like the US or the UK or Germany uh, yeah some of the the main economies or of course on an international level uh, if you know the EU for example it's hard to imagine but uh, took a decision to democratize big uh, big companies uh, maybe you noticed that uh, half year ago there was a discussion actually in the EU and they proposed a more uh, workers representation in in companies and 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 um, also the Danish um, employers federation that just went crazy it was like, ah, how can the EU suggest this this is communism and so on so but I, I so I think they will be able to stop these kind of initiatives but um But when that is uh, said, uh, a lot of what I'm proposing we could initiate tomorrow because uh, one of my ways of uh, working with this book is trying to take experiences that already function in other European countries or in the US or in the uh, in Canada or other places and then uh, propose that we do the, the same thing. For example, Germany has a public bank. Uh, half of the German population have the public banks as a main bank. Uh, in Britain, you know, the, you have uh, special tax schemes uh, for if you sell your company to the workers, you have some benefits and all these kind of ideas we could just need to... The idea of uh, creating... Uh, democratic ownership fund to buy up land instead of letting capital uh, wealth managers buy up our land that they're doing in yeah really quickly in, in this year so a lot of things we could we could start tomorrow but of course if we really want to yeah change the uh, what you call it the the relation of forces uh, it had to be on an international level and therefore you know we have to do more to organize with our friends and movements and uh, socialists uh, from other uh, parts of the, of the world. 
And the other issue, of course, also is that even if we succeeded in a democratic economy in, in our part of the world, we would still be a part of a really unjust international trading system with, you know, the unequal um, exchange with the global south. But I think that in a democratic economy, without this kind of oligarchic power, without this kind of forced accumulation that we have in, in our big corporation today, I think it would be a lot easier for us to agree on more just trading policies with the global south also. But uh, but in some way you could say that my book is a little Eurocentric. It's, it takes uh, its starting point at least in, in our own countries. And that's because, you know, that's where we do the struggle and where we ha have had all our successes as, as a labor movement throughout the, the years. So, but of course, it's it's a major uh, task and a major challenge to try to organize a lot more uh, cross-border among uh, among uh, yeah the working class in, in broader sense. Cool. You basically started on my my last uh, question, which was which practices could Nordic countries be inspired mm. by uh, further away. And maybe I was thinking what you said about not trying to do socialism during capitalism. Mm. But I was thinking, like, what is your thoughts about prefiguration? Trying to make socialist institutions that promote, like, the socialist way. Kind of like what the syndicalists did in, for example, mm. in Spain, where mm. they tried to do workers' communities, and that was actually like uh, how they how they uh, got themselves loose and how mm. they transformed the economy for mm. a very short while yeah you could say that i draw from the same ideas and maybe even traditions uh, because that that's a main idea the main idea of uh, point of my book is that we don't have to start from scratch that in some kind we already created some institutions and of course they're not perfect institutions will never be perfect but they show us our co-op sector in the housing sector in the uh, our, our biggest grocery chain is a cooperative uh, we have worker cooperative also not so much in Denmark as in other European countries but and they function and they uh, every day they are proof that you you can organize economic enterprise in ways that are not exploitative and that are democratically governed uh, and uh, where you don't have capital owners who take up the wealth and uh, and, uh, and and where you don't uh, con contribute to this kind of you know oligarchic power that that the capitalist system all the ways uh, all the time creates by uh, you know um, concentrating uh, concentrating wealth in uh, among a, a small uh, elite of capital owners so the what i think the left has been maybe a failure of the left have been to to try to you know the idea of socialism as some kind of only utopian uh, vision of something that Uh, we, we build from scratch after revolution. So the idea is that, and that's uh, the idea of the term Nordic socialism is to acknowledge that we all already have, you know, building blocks, and we have um, uh, experiences uh, that we can use and uh, that we can expand uh, in order to reduce the power of capital and the power of markets. Um, step by step, and of course, it's not. I'm not naive. I know that there are uh, strong interests and strong elite groups that will oppose this kind of ideas. It's not kind of a. I'm not a 
total Bernsteinist, <laughs> it's not a kind of evolutionary, non-contradictionary process. It will be a lot of struggle and a lot of conflict, of course. But, but I think the idea that that socialism is something that we already know f- from our, you know, public hospitals, our libraries, our højskoler. I don't know what it's called in English. All from your activities in in MS, you know, all places where where we organize activities in economies without uh, without capitalists, basically. So that's the main point. Then you ask uh, if I'm inspired from other parts mm-hmm. of the world. Uh, it's very important for me to say that the idea of Nordic socialism doesn't mean that it's kind of, you know, kind of this would only function in the Nordic countries. It's not kind of culturalist in any way. It's just I took the term from Donald Trump, who used it in a report talking about Nordic socialism. I found it found it funny that, uh, and I, I liked the, the the term, so I took it as a title for my book. But but it's not a culturalist idea. Uh, I think it just has to do with because of certain historical uh, circumstances, uh, the correlation of forces in the Nordic countries have been in the favor of the working class for some years, and also because of the presence of the farmers' movement in the 19th century and all the the co-op experience that that came out of this. But actually, in in my book, I mostly find inspiration in on the European level because we have co-ops in Denmark. But if you Visit, for example, the Italian region of uh, Emilia-Romagna. The density of uh, cooperative is much more, it's higher density of cooperative. The same could, could go for the Basque country with famous work-owned cooperative like Mondragon, uh, which is uh, the fifth employer in Spain with more than 80,000 workers o- worker owners. Uh, but actually, if you really wa- want to find a, a cooperative density, then you should go to, to the Indian region of, of Kerala. I don't remember the, the numbers, but it's a really high density of cooperative. And of course, also in Latin America, Asia, Africa, there are lots of experiences in, in organizing economy in non-capitalist way. Also, of course, in more indigenous communities. And actually, you could also go to some of the market-oriented society like for example Singapore we think about it as you know very capitalist society but the state owns all lands and nearly all housing and ha- have been able in that way to hold down uh, prices so so there's a lot of uh, experiences from all over the world that we could uh, of course pick up uh, and and use uh, and we can contribute with some experiences from the Nordic countries but I'm sure that from other parts of the world that would be the same. It's a, it's a universal idea that capitalism is not alone, that there is an outside. And for me, this idea of an outside capitalism and, you know, that we have some building blocks is kind of, for me, it's kind of radical because it, it gives us a possibility to start to create socialism, not just, you know, wait for it until <laughs> after the, the revolution. Cool. Is there anything you think we've forgotten or anything you'd like to add? Read the book. <laughs> I did, but, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> but it, it haven't come out in English, but I could say that uh, there are some articles, for example, in the in the British uh, magazine Tribune, and uh, there are also coming an article uh, soon in, uh, in, in Jacobin. Um, so I really hope that the, the book will come out in English as well. Uh, my publisher is working on it, but... Uh, will we we haven't had success yet <laughs> so yeah last question 
Um, on an actionable level for like the ordinary citizen, what is one thing they could do right now? I think they can use the democratic spaces that are available. For example, most Danish workers, they are part of a pension fund uh, organized through, uh, through their union. And uh, actually, there have been some very in- interesting movement. I think Emma's have also in some way taken part in organizing uh, workers to take over the leadership in order to, for example, uh, de-invest in uh, fossil fuels. But we could take that much further. We could say we want actually our pension savings uh, to be used more in order to achieve goals, not only to, you know, uh, to not invest in something, but to de- to decide we want to in- invest, especially in, in these kind of activities. That's also a way of democratizing the, the decision of investment. But it's also to be active in your grocery store, to to uh, to, to be active in your energy uh, co-op, co-op. You know, lots of the energy inf- infrastructure in Denmark is uh, cooperatively owned, and uh, it's important that we use this space. Of course, you know, as I think Oscar Wilde's... Uh, he said, I'm have been told at least, that the problem about socialism is that there's too too few evenings in the week to all this meeting that we have to attend. <laughs> so of course we, we need to prioritize and to to make some kind of representative structures. But I think the most important thing is to acknowledge that actually we do have economic power in in certain extent if we organize together and uh, use our collective uh, democratic power in these institutions we could start to today or tomorrow thank you so much for coming in it, it was, was a, a real pleasure a pleasure for me as well details of the book will be in the notes for this episode Mellemfolk Samvirke is a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world here in Aarhus we have over a hundred volunteers working together to run a not-for-profit cafe and campaign and educate in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugees' rights. You can come down to Café Mellenfolk every day, but Sunday for food, drinks and events in a code seat cafe. You can also get involved with our events, activities and campaigns and even running the cafe as a volunteer yourself. So go on and check out our Instagram, Facebook to find out more by looking up Café Mellemfolk or Mellemfolk Litzamwege Aarhus or following the links in the episode notes. And check out our Podbean YouTube and other podcast providers for more episodes, interviews and cool stuff. Thank you everyone for listening and until next time, goodbye.